Snap Studios. Snap Judgment is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. The icy conversation. The elephant in the room, too hard, too big, too messy to even whisper about. Hangs over everything, colors everything, but still goes unsaid. Nobody, nobody dares go there. But today, on Snap Judgment, we go there. Snap probably presents The Happening. My name is Lynn Washington. Understand, words can only take you so far when you're listening. Snap Judgment. We begin with the story of a father and a son. A father forced to decide how far his love will go. And this piece, it does contain sensitive content and graphic imagery that is not suitable for our youngest snappers as such. Discretion is advised. Roger Stringer spoke to our own Nancy Lopez. Snap Judgment. Justin loved fishing more than he did hunting, and Zach loved hunting more than he did fishing. So I never really got a break. There was no downtime for me. Every chance he got, Roger Stringer, a crew foreman by day, would load up his sons into his little red beat-up truck and venture out to the lakes or pine woods that surrounded their home in Enon, Mississippi. And we would ride the four-wheeler, and we would skip rocks in the creek, and they learned the animals, different animals in the woods, what their tendencies, what they like to do, where you can normally find them, and what kind of habits they have, and some of that's pretty comical. There's something to learn every time you go to the woods or to the water. Every time you learn. I was constantly working my tail off to entertain my boys and let them become more of what they wanted to be, and I was pretty good at it. Zach, his oldest son, would eventually become so skilled at hunting. I didn't really hunt anymore. I I was just a scout for him. That when Zach turned 12 years old, Roger decided it was time. I felt like he was ready for his own personal deer rifle. And I did not not reach that decision lightly. I mean, Zach had been to hunter's education courses, and I had watched him and his handling of guns, and he was safe. I wanted something that didn't kick too bad that would kill a deer a long way off quickly. And that's why I settled on a 25-06. And I had a Remington Model 700, and it had always been a fine little gun. I loved it. So I just bought Zach a Model 700 Remington. It was ready to go about five days before Christmas. He was just like 
cool. I've got my own now. I don't need to use yours anymore, Daddy. We finished that hunting season out, and the next year, Zach decided that he much preferred my 300 Win Mag to his 25-06. That 25-06 did not get nearly the, the time in the woods that I was hoping that it was going to get when I first bought it. It got to the point where Zach hardly used the Remington rifle. That is until one night in the summer of 2011. I had taken the boys out to eat that night to get them out of the house because their mom was going to show it to prospective buyers. At the time, Roger and his wife were going through a divorce. I Honestly, I did not want a divorce, but there was no way around it. It was, it was unavoidable. And Roger had already moved out. It was about 8.30, and it was sprinkling rain. We had all three eaten boiled shrimp for supper that night. His son, Zach, was now a full-blown teenager, and Justin was 11. And a lady had actually came over to the table, and she complimented me on my two fine boys and how nice we looked sitting there eating supper with each other. And when we left there, we went by Walmart, and I bought each one of them a little happy. A happy? A happy, yes. What is that? Just a little small present. You just just buy a little something to make them happy. I got Zach a pack of lures to fish with. I got Justin a hook disgorger. So when he's fishing, if the fish had the hook swallowed too deeply, it would help him get the hook out without hurting the fish any worse than he just absolutely had to. And I text their mom, and she said that, yes, she was done showing the house, and she had went to somebody else's because they were having a birthday party, and I could take the boys home whenever I got ready. So I took the boys home, and they had been talking on the way home about the new movie that was going to premiere that night. They wanted to watch How to Train Your Dragon, the original one. Roger dropped the boys off knowing that their mom would be home soon enough. I hugged both of them on the carport, told them that I loved them and bye, and I went back to my mom and dad's house. And I had been sitting on the couch 15 or 20 minutes. We were watching a baseball game, and the phone rung, and it was my wife. She was screaming, and I couldn't understand anything that she was saying except the word Justin. And my first thought was that she had got home right after I'd left and maybe she had sent him up in the attic to get some stuff down and maybe he had fallen on that ladder that goes up in the attic or something. So I jumped up and got in my truck and headed at breakneck speed back to where the boys were. And about a half mile down the road, Zach called. And he said, Daddy, I love you, Daddy. I said, I love you too, baby. I said, what is it? He said, you know I love you, don't you, Daddy? I said, yeah. I said, what's happened? He said, Justin's dead. I said, what happened? He said, he's been shot. I said, with what? He said, with the 25 out 6 The 25 out 6 the Remington rifle. 
the one Roger had gifted Zach three Christmases ago. I said, let me go. I'll see you in a minute. And I called 911, and I told them to send everything that they had, that there'd been a shooting, and I gave them my address. I parked out in the edge of the yard, and I went running toward the house. And Roger found Zach waiting for him in the garage. I tried to stop him before he went in the house and told him, said, Daddy, don't go in there. It's bad. And I just pushed him out of the way and went on in, and Justin was sitting in a blue chair in the living room. It it just, it was not good. It was, it was terrible. He got on his knees and he prayed. There was, there was pieces of his scalp was hanging off the deer horns that were mounted on the wall. I was overloaded. I couldn't think. I was I was stoic because um, that way I guess that's just how I handled the pressure that I was now under. The phone started to ring, and it was a nine one one operator that had called back. None of the emergency personnel had gotten there yet, and I told her I said, "Tell them don't get in a big hurry, don't wreck on these wet roads, because he cannot be saved." And she said, is he still breathing? And I said, yes, he's still breathing, but he cannot live without a brain. I remember saying that to the 911 operator. Hmm. Wow. And then what happened? Like within less than a minute of me hanging it up, the boy's mother drove up. And I told Zach, I said, Zach, we cannot let her see this. So he and I both went outside. And when she got out of her forerunner, we just grabbed her and held her. It was sprinkling rain. And we held her and didn't let her go. The uh, sheriff's department got there very shortly. And it didn't take the sheriff's department but just about five minutes to figure out that Things were not as they appeared. Roger had noticed it too. The weapon that he saw on Justin's lap was not the Remington rifle that Zach had originally described over the phone. It was a shotgun with the uh, barrel pointed toward him. And I knew that that did not look right because if Justin had been shot, by a gun pointed at him, the recoil would have turned the muzzle of it around and it would not have been pointed where it was. The house was taped off, crime scene tape and all that kind of stuff. And the next few days were just a blur. I was numb, I was in shock. I was uh, just trying to make it day to day. I felt like I had this secret eating a hole inside me. I, I, I was just, inside my mind, it was just reaching and grabbing for stuff that was not there. I could not comprehend what had happened nor why. By Tuesday of that week, I was beginning to suspect 
that Zach knew more than he had said. Earlier that day, Roger and Zach had gone to the sheriff's department so that Zach could give a formal statement about what happened the night his little brother died. I told him that, you know, I was in, I was in my room. Justin, he was in the living room. He said that Justin had said, I love you, Zach, and then he heard the gun go off. You know, I heard the gunshot, you know, and then I came in, everything was like it was. Zach had said that Justin evidently had shot himself either by accident or on purpose. I was I was confused. Zach had told me that Justin had been shot with the 25-06, and I asked Zach about that the next day, and he said, Daddy, he said, I didn't know what I was saying. I felt that it is necessary for me to lie. You know, I had nothing to do with it. Be as far away as I possibly could from blame. And I just knew in my heart that that shotgun could not have caused that kind of damage. I just didn't believe that it could have. And that made me think that Zach was not telling the truth. Do you tell him that? I didn't tell him that. I felt so guilty for daring to entertain the thought that Zach could have had something to do with it. I felt like a bad dad for even thinking something like that. We got Justin's body back from the crime lab, and we had the wake on a Thursday night, and it was full. There was there were so many people there. I think the registry that I have at the house has like 1,300 signatures on it. The funeral was the next morning. There was a lot of flowers. I don't know how many, but there was a lot of them. By that Friday, I thought, I'm home free. If they haven't arrested me by now, I'm home free. But then after the funeral. It was about 3 p.m. that afternoon. Roger and Zach were summoned back to the sheriff's department. And as soon as we walked in the door, one of them grabbed Zach and led him down a little hall. And they said, Roger, you need to come this way. And they ushered me into a conference room. Well, immediately, I knew something was up at that point. So they got me in a room, I guess the interrogation room, interview room. I don't know what they, what they would call it. And they just made small talk. They just wanted to talk to my dad and made out like, you know, they were just talking to him. And the sheriff was sitting in the conference room and he had several other deputies in there. Bear in mind that this sheriff, he used to actually be Zach's t-ball coach when Zach played t-ball when he was seven and eight years old. He knew this kid. So I sat down. So I was there by myself with law enforcement and they got me to sign away my Miranda rights. And they said, Roger, Zach had been very untruthful to us about what had happened. As soon as I got through signing that piece of paper, they said, what really happened? And I tried to go back into the story and they're like, no, we know that's not what happened. And, and my whole, I melted. Justin had not been shot with a shotgun. He had been shot once with that rifle and 
we needed to be looking at getting a lawyer to represent him. All I could say was I didn't do it. I didn't do it over and over and over again. I said, let me talk to Zach. I will get him to tell the truth about what happened. Let me talk to him. I stood up out of my chair and I looked at the door. The sheriff, they said, we'll do the questioning. His two biggest deputies who had arms that looked like cannons were standing at the door with their arms folded. And I looked at those two big guys and I thought, this is not gonna end well for me if I try to go through them. So I sat back down and I started trying to ask questions as rationally as I could then. How could this happen? How could he shoot Justin? The charade was coming apart at the seams instantly. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. And then I asked for a lawyer. When Snapchat returns, Zach changes his story. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the happening episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and when last we left, Roger had just learned that his son Zach lied about what happened the night Justin died. And he's left wondering, will Zach tell the truth? Snap Judgment. I asked for a lawyer, and they had probably three or four, maybe five or six police officers stacked up at the door. They arrested me and took me to jail. He was arrested on June the 17th of 2011. Zach was immediately placed on suicide watch. So I had a guard outside my cell, an older African-American lady that dipped. She dipped tobacco, which was unique. You don't really see a lot of women that do that, but she did, which is fine. My dad dips. She was sitting in a chair outside my, my cell watching me. So at that point in time, I was very concerned about spending the rest of my life in prison. I was in total self-preservation mode. And seeing no other way out, Zach decided to start talking. So what I told her, this was the version of the story that, that I took and then went all the way through trial with. Zach told the guard a different story than the one he'd first told his dad and investigators. He told her that it was all an accident. He told her that he was in the living room with his brother, that he'd grabbed his deer rifle, just as a show, to get Justin to stop messing with him. And then somehow, the rifle had gone off on its own. I didn't know how the gun had went off. And his little brother happened to be in the line of fire. So I went, I took my rifle and put it in my room, back where it normally goes. And then I went in my brother's room grabbed his shotgun, loaded his shell, went out the back door, opened the back door, fired the shell out, then stuck the shotgun between his legs to make it look like he had accidentally killed himself with his gun. Zach told the guard he staged the whole scene to look like an accident. Because, I mean, I was... Just the way things looked, it looked really, really bad. Zach would tell that same story 
that it was an accident, that the rifle fired on its own, to every guard that came through to keep watch over him. He told it to his attorney, who then relayed it to Zach's mom and dad. Bullcrap. I didn't believe that it could have been an accident. Zach had already lied and it sounded too it sounded too far-fetched to me. He's just reaching, he's grasping for straws. I mean, I had shot Remington rifles my whole life. I'd never heard anything about that. Roger had used Zach's deer rifle, probably more than Zach even, and it had never gone off on its own. That, and Zach had always been meticulous about gun safety. So Roger thought, what was he doing with the loaded weapon unless he intended to use it? I deduced in my mind that Zach had got that rifle down to threaten Justin. Justin called his bluff. Zach called it back, and the only way that he could do that would be to click the safety off and pull the trigger. I thought that he had lost it. He had been so upset that he had lost it momentarily. I was really angry, but I was also very disappointed in him, and I was very afraid for him. There's, there's just so many emotions that you go through that it, it's hard to put into words. And he was charged with murder. He was looking at life without the possibility of parole. I moved back in the house about three weeks after, after the happening. I couldn't sleep. I looked at a lot of pictures. I laid in the floor and would scream. I, I can remember laying down in the floor right where that blue chair had been sitting. And I screamed and I beat the floor with my forearms until no sound would come out. And I was bruised from the end of my hands up to my elbows. Why'd you move back in? Because I decided that I was going to own this whole ordeal. That it was painful, but I was going to subject myself to the pain, and I was going to own it. It wasn't going to own me. And it was not going to destroy me. I didn't ask for it, but I was not going to run away from it. And one night... It was Christmas Eve night. I had lit some candles, and I was sitting there, and I just felt the the urge to be as close to him as I could be. So Roger grabbed his keys, got into his pickup truck, and headed east towards Marion County Jail, where Zach was still locked up. It was way past visiting hours. And I sat in the parking lot thinking about happier times, wishing things were different. I mean, I wondered what was wrong with him, what caused him to do that. While Roger's youngest son had always gotten along so easily with others. Justin was everybody's best friend. He was a little smooth operator. Zach was a complete opposite. Zach was high strung. Zach was ADHD. And I always called him Mr. Inappropriate because he could, he could say some things that 
you know, even if you thought it, you you knew that you shouldn't say it, but he had no filter. He would say things that were just completely inappropriate. And he was socially awkward. He had some friends, but he didn't have a lot of friends. He didn't have a lot of close friends. And he got picked on and bullied at school. And about a month before the happening, Zach had been taken off of his ADHD medication so he could get his appetite back and regain some weight. He was so thin. But now Roger couldn't help but wonder if that had caused him to snap. And I think to a degree, I I probably blamed myself for what happened some, too. Am I subconsciously a bad person? Am I a monster that created something in Zach that would cause him to do something like that? And I struggled with that for a good while. I didn't sit there all night. I I don't know how long it was. It might have been 30 minutes. It might have been two hours. And it, it served no purpose, but I just felt like that was something that I needed to do then. And Roger decided he was not going to turn his back on his one remaining son. The only person who truly believed in him was his mother, and she wasn't there to visit as much as I was. And, uh, I mean, she was in the same shape I was. She had lost two kids just like I had. She was just dealing with it in a little different way than I was. And I tried to be there for him all that I could. I put $400 on that collect phone call account. So anytime he wanted to talk to me, I was available. I mean, he was there for me. He supported me, put money on my account so I could buy food and stuff. They let him buy me some uh, Carhartt Long Johns so I wouldn't be cold at night. And I felt like that that was the best help that I could offer him at that time. So there was definitely, the best way to describe it is ice in the relationship, you know? I was, I was dismissive of him. It was like the tone of his voice was just different. He was a million miles from whatever we were talking about. He was almost in another world. And it was so strange. I never, I never got over the strangeness of those little verbal dances that we would do. The awkwardness felt even more palpable during their in-person visits. It was in the back of my mind, and I could see it in his eyes that it was in the back of his, too. Roger would be sitting across from his son in a small cluttered office room with the guard at the door watching over them. We talk about, you know, how you doing? Are you eating okay? Or... You know, you sleeping good at night. He would tell me about books that they had brought him for him to read, and I would tell him about what was going on on the outside. We would just talk about hunting and, you know, current events. We would talk about everything under the sun except what put him in the position that he was in. Up to that point, father and son had not talked about Zach's confession at all in part because Zach's attorney advised against it, in part because neither Zach nor Roger was ready to go there yet. I just could not. I felt like I needed to forgive him for killing Justin, and I couldn't do it. And then one day during a visit. Like a year later, I had been in county jail for a long time waiting on trial. 
and he tried to talk to me about the incident. He told me that it was an accident. Playing with the gun, on the couch, gun went off, freaked out. He tried to tell me that two or three times, and I would cut him off. I'd say, son, just quit lying. I'd say, I told him, I said, Daddy, what if when you die and get to heaven, if God tells you that I didn't do it on purpose? And he looked at me. I said, well, God's going to have to tell me because I don't believe it with you telling me. This is the hardest look my daddy's ever given me with the most steel in his eyes. He was really convincing, and I wanted to believe him, but I just couldn't. It didn't make any sense. You decide to testify against your son. Yes, yes. I didn't even have to think about it. Of course I was ready to testify. It was my duty. I had always said that I was going to love my boys equally and that I would support both of them to the best of my ability. But I have always preached to them that you have got to tell the truth. I felt like Justin was not there to speak for himself, and I had to try to do my best to speak for him. By the time Roger took the stand... I was one of the last witnesses that the prosecution called. It had been two years since the happening, and father and son were no longer on speaking terms. Prosecutors were charging Zach with murder. I'm in a chair in the courtroom. My lawyer's to my left. The prosecution's to my right. Jury's to my right. The box, the uh, witness box, is on my left. I'm looking right at him. And I testified that that gun had always functioned perfectly, that it had had probably a little more than 100 rounds put through it, that it had a hard trigger, that there was absolutely no way that I could see that it could go off without that trigger being pulled. I felt relieved that my part was over. It would take the jury only three hours to deliberate. And they came back with guilty of manslaughter. He was found guilty of culpable negligent manslaughter at that trial, and the judge sentenced him to the maximum. And when that judge said 20 years, uh, my knees buckled. But he said 20 years, 10 suspended, 10 to serve. 10 to serve and 10 on supervised probation. I guess I was relieved. At that moment, I thought, well, he's not going to be locked up his entire life. Maybe he'll be able to live some semblance of a life when he gets out. Zach was moved to the Central Mississippi Correctional Facility, about 90 miles away from home. He was put in the Youthful Offenders Unit. And behind the fencing and the walls and the cell door, Zach thought about his dad and about the past. I was not the most popular kid in school. I wasn't good at a lot of things. I wasn't good at baseball. I wasn't good at football, but I was good at nothing. I, I had a good teacher was the reason that I was good. So one day, after months of not speaking to his dad, Zach decided to call him up. It's just as soon as you could pretend that your left eye doesn't exist as I could have pretended that 
I still didn't love him. I didn't want him in my life. So I tried to call him, and the first time, I think he he tried to answer, but accidentally hung up. And I was like, well, fine. You know, you don't want to talk to me. You know, I won't talk to you. Well, I kind of, you know, I wanted to talk to my dad. I ended up calling and again a couple days later. And I immediately started going to visit him. Oh, the ice. It was like Antarctica in those conversations. We kind of tiptoed back into whatever relationship we had when he was locked up down at county, which was that little verbal dance that we would do. We tried to always stay away from uh, that topic. But he appreciated me being there for him, and he hugged me really tight after every visit. I was going to do my time and go home and, you know, try to live my life the best way I can from now on. When Zach turned 18, he was moved to the Mississippi State Penitentiary, or Parchman Farm. That's where they do hard time. And he was moved up there and put in Unit 30. So this is the turning point of everything. Everything turns and hinges on this single point right here. is not over. When we return, Zach calls his dad from prison to finally tell him the truth about his brother's death. Stay tuned. You're listening to Snap Judgment. The Happening Episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and when last we left, Roger and Zach were getting reacquainted again as father and son. But there's one thing they still do not talk about. Snap Judgment. One Saturday night, he called me. He said, I want to I talk about it. He said, I want to talk about all of it, Daddy. He said, it's time. I was I was shocked, but he didn't sound like a kid anymore. He sounded like he was grown. I said, okay. And I told him every single thing that happened that night. Every single detail, even the gruesome parts of it, about what happened that night. I told him everything. Because, I mean, it was, I, I knew that it was the right thing to do. Zach told his dad how Justin had been shooting his dart gun inside the house that night. He may have shot the wall. I know he shot the dog. Fred, our dog, ran into my room with a dart in him. Bad as that was, I thought it was funny at the time. So I pulled the dart out. He told him how Justin then started taunting him, making as if he was going to shoot Zach with a dart gun. And I thought it was a good idea to take my deer rifle and say, you know, hey, if you shoot me with that, the dart gun, I'll shoot you with this. And here's where Zach told his dad the one detail he'd first left out. I loaded the gun. And he put a round in it. I should have told the police that I loaded that gun. I should have told them everything. 
He said, but daddy, he said, I didn't even point it at him. Zach told his dad how Justin ultimately backed off and how they went into the living room to watch a movie together instead. We had a free weekend of like HBO stars Cinemax that weekend, and I wanted to watch TV. He told him how he was sitting on the couch with the rifle resting across his lap. The barrel happened to be pointing in the direction of Justin, who was sitting in the blue chair. And then I told him, hey, let me go put this up, talking about the gun. And those were the last words I ever said to my brother. Zach told his dad that what happened next was simply unexplainable. He told him how he grabbed the deer rifle. My finger's not inside the trigger guard. And as I stood up off the couch, I heard a click and the rifle discharged. Flew out of my hand. I remember seeing a fire leap from the barrel and it was like it was slow motion. I saw the bullet impact um, and it was catastrophic. He took a rifle bullet at point blank range in the forehead. I, I froze. He stressed to his dad that he never pulled the trigger. He didn't accidentally shoot it. Somehow the rifle went off on its own. I, I could not comprehend what had just happened. I didn't think about how the safety had gotten off. I didn't think about why did the gun go off. All I knew is that it had, and, and I panicked. First, I went to him, and I told him, I'm sorry for not playing with him more. I'm sorry for not being a better brother. I didn't mean this. I'm sorry. And then I thought, I have to, I have to fix this. I can't let Mama and Daddy know that this is my fault, or they will not love me anymore. Because prison calls get cut off after 15 minutes. I called him three times. Zach had to keep dialing his dad. I talked to him for like 45 minutes. And it cost like $21 to just talk to him for that long. And for the first time, Zach finally got through the whole story without his dad cutting him off. I said, you know, I messed up and I made some really, really stupid mistakes. But... That does not change the fact that what happened was an accident. And I felt like he heard me. I felt like he was actually listening to me. I felt closer to him than I had an hour before. And so what made you now be willing to hear him out? That's a question that I honestly can't answer. Uh, I mean, it. you could speculate that I had grieved long enough that the sky was starting to clear and I was starting to be able to think. I didn't know how, but the way he described it, it sounded like he was telling the truth. I believed him. But Roger didn't tell Zach that he believed him because his son's story still didn't add up. Guns are not supposed to go off without a trigger being pulled. And when Roger pressed Zach for an explanation, Zach told him he didn't have one. He was as baffled as Roger. He said, I was afraid of it. He said, I was afraid it was going to go off again because I knew I didn't have my finger on the trigger. That's why I stuck it up in the closet. 
my first thought was it would have tore that finger up if his finger had been in the trigger guard. And he said, no, it, I wasn't scratched up or skin up anywhere, Daddy. And that in itself told me that I didn't think his finger was in the trigger guard and he was telling the truth. I mean, I had a lot to think over. And then the next morning, Roger was sitting at home when he decided to grab his pistol and take it apart. And look at it, because it had been a while since I'd cleaned it. I put it back together, so I stuck a magazine in it, charged the uh, slide on it, but I forgot that I was putting a loaded magazine in it. So when I racked the slide, I actually put around in the chamber, and I pointed it at the mantle and pulled the trigger. It went off, and it blew a big chunk out of my mantle. And my first thought through my mind was, I have got to get this fixed before somebody finds out I have shot a gun in my house. And then it was like a voice welled up inside me saying, this is the way Zach felt when it happened. And Zach tried to fix it too, but he couldn't fix it. I was speechless, blubbering, crying, and I knew without a shadow of a doubt I knew Zach was innocent. I didn't know how I was going to discover it, how I was going to prove it, or anything. But I knew that he was telling the truth. That made me want to understand more about what happened, but it still hadn't dawned on me that I needed to to check the gun yet. I googled on a whim just off the top of my head, I felt like I should Google Remington Model 700 spontaneous firing. And that's the day the world changed. That was on March 14th, 2015. It'd been two months since he and Zach had had their heart-to-heart conversation. But another thing had happened to Roger to push him to this moment. An old buddy of his had recently mentioned how his rifle had gone off on its own without him pulling the trigger. And so now as Roger looked down at his iPhone screen, it was clear that this was not an isolated incident. There had actually been a news story done by CNBC. This is Remington Under Fire, a CNBC investigation. And I I watched it. It was about the uh, propensity of those rifles to go off without the trigger being pulled. To whom it may concern. They are voices from across the country. And I remember saying, I didn't touch this trigger. And it went off spontaneously without touching the trigger. First-person accounts of jarring, frightening accidents. It misfired. As soon as I let it go, the gun went off. Told directly to Remington. When I pushed the safety off, the gun fired. In the six decades since Remington introduced its 700 series of rifles, the company has received thousands of customer complaints like these about the guns going off unintentionally. They had been doing it for decades, going off on their own without a trigger pull, which I I didn't know all that. And as Roger went down the internet rabbit hole. I mean, there was article after article about the Model 700s going off without a trigger pull. 
and I saw that there was a recall for those guns with those particular triggers in them. In fact, by 2015, Remington had recalled almost 8 million Model 700 rifles due to their trigger assembly being defective. But it took Roger another few weeks to call Remington directly and confirm for himself whether the rifle that he'd gifted Zach that ultimately killed Justin was under recall. It was. It horrified me. I had helped put him in prison, and then there I am finding out that myself, along with everybody else that helped put him there, were wrong because we didn't look in the right place. The kid has been telling the truth the whole dead gum time, and the whole world has been against him because of it. Do you remember the first time you apologized to him? I don't remember. I don't. I, that moment is not seared into my memory, but I remember apologizing to him sitting in that gym that they have for visitation up at Unit 30C. I'm quite certain that there was a big hug and a few tears involved in it. And what did you apologize for to him specifically? For not believing him and for not being there for him. He told me, I believe you. I believe that you are innocent. And oh man, what a day that was. Oh, euphoria. Like, euphoric. Like, imagine your team, whoever your team is, if you have one, just won the Super Bowl, you just won the lottery, all of that just in one moment. It was better to me than anything that he believed me now. That was all I needed. So the following Monday, I was sitting at the defense attorney's office that had represented Zach in his trial. I was sitting at his office wanting him to file whatever he needed to to appeal Zach's conviction. The lawyer had told me, he said, this is going to take a while. This is going to take a good while. I decided that I don't care what it costs. I don't care what it does to me personally. This fight, I'm going to win. This is the fight that I was put on this earth to win, to exonerate Zach. But about a year and a half later, before Roger could make headway into trying to exonerate his son, he got unexpected news. Zach was being released from prison early for good behavior. Oh, I was ecstatic about him getting out. I was ready for him to get back to my house so I could just feed him and I could see him. So I got up about 2 o'clock that morning and drove up to Parchman to make sure that I was going to be there in plenty of time. I didn't want to be late. This five-hour drive to the Mississippi State Penitentiary would be Roger's last. After five years locked up, Zach was about to walk out a free man, and Roger was bringing his son back home. I had bought him a new bed. I had saved up money to shop and buy him some clothes with. I mean, I had fully stocked the pantry with all sorts of snacks. He used to love the uh, little Debbie cakes and whatnot. And I, I had all the snacks that he could possibly want to eat. When Roger finally pulled into the small gravel parking lot at Parchman, it was nearly empty. 
daylight was just starting to break. They haul him out on a little school bus-like thing. There was a few more that were being released the same day. And he was... Honestly, he looked like he had just been released from a concentration camp because he was six foot two and he weighed 152 pounds. He was a scarecrow. We had a little boo-hooing moment. <laughs> we we talked for just a second, and he was ready to get away from that place. He had seen enough of Parchman, Mississippi. He was ready to come back south where there were some pine trees. Father and son were still teary-eyed as they hopped into Roger's pickup truck. There was a sense of relief that I finally had him. I had struggled for over a year, year and a half, to try to get him back, and I finally had him. So we left there. I mean, I, had, I hadn't left the Delta in two years. I hadn't been in an actual car since before I got arrested. So I was enjoying every minute of it, not wearing chains. Uh, I've got my whole life in front of me. I'm excited. And we stopped at a gas station and gassed up, got him a, a sausage biscuit and some hash browns or something. And we were headed back south down the highway through the Mississippi Delta. Oh, the blue sky, the sun was just coming up over the horizon. It was early in the morning. And he said, Daddy, I've seen some pretty sunrises with you in the woods and down on the coast when we'd be fishing in the marshes and all. He said, but that's the prettiest sunrise I've ever seen right there. That was the most beautiful day that I have ever seen in my entire life. When he walked in the house, you could see where that blue chair had been sitting that Justin was in that night, the the empty space on the on the floor. And he just stood there and he just looked at it. He didn't say anything. It's like a movie in my head. Even now all I have to do is close my eyes and I can see it all. Justin, the gun, the smell, the sounds, the taste of gunpowder in the air. I told him, I said, well, go on in your room, son, and, and see, see how you like things in there. Roger took the next two weeks off from work. So I could be with him 24-7. We got real close real quick again. How so? We just, we talked a lot. We were there. We could hug. We could fist bump. We would get in the truck and we would just ride. We went fishing, <laughs> and we were fishing in the same place that we used to all three fish together in. I enjoyed being out there with him, but at the same time, I was still grieving Justin and the fact that Justin couldn't be there with us, but I was doing what had to be done. And then one day, Zach asked Roger if he could go fishing by himself. As soon as he got his driver's license, he would go and fish all day long. He didn't catch a lot of fish. He caught some, but it wasn't about catching fish. It was just about being free. I couldn't. I knew I couldn't hunt because you, you can't have a, a gun as a felon, but you can fish. There's no laws against having hooks and sinkers. 
I mean, you know, it was it was something that I had dreamed about. The best dreams that I had when I was in prison were dreams about fishing. I wanted to get back to something that I knew that I thought I may never, ever get to do again. So it wasn't really like a, a, a Justin thing. You know, I'm doing it because of him. But I do, I do see the similarities. I had the desire to go like he did. The best mornings are like, well, there's a light fog sitting on the, on the water. The water is smooth as glass. A crane is on the shoreline, on the left shoreline, and, and you know, sitting there fishing just like us. All the frogs are croaking and the birds are singing and the anticipation of, you know, the catch or a bite is, is palpable and it's quiet. I can be in this moment and this is the only place in the world that I want to be right now. A very, very big thank you to Roger and Zach Stringer for sharing their story with the Snap. As of yet, Zach has not been exonerated. A post-conviction relief appeal to clear his name is stalled in a local circuit court. Zach is now 24. He goes to college full-time. In fact, he's the first ever convicted felon to be admitted to William Carey University in Mississippi. The original score for this story was by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by Nancy Lopez. Yes, it's happened again. If you missed even a moment of this incredible story, subscribe to the Snap Judgment Podcast to hear it and get so much more. And if you love Snap storytelling, support it. Go to patreon.com slash snapjudgment. Help us continue to tell amazing stories. Patreon.com slash snapjudgment. Snap is brought to you by the team with no secrets. Except, of course, for the producer, Mr. Mark Ristich, Patrick City Miller, Anna Sussman, Renzo Gorio, Nancy Lopez, John Facile, Shayna Sheely, Marissa Dodge, Nick Asang, Lauren Newsom, Teo Ducat, Flo Wiley, Regina Bediaco, and Leon Morimoto. And this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, a glowing, beautiful phoenix could rise from the ashes directly in front of you, speak your name, and then ask to borrow your car keys, and you would still, 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 still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PRX.